Hey, Stacy, I understand that there is an election coming up at some point. At least we're hoping it's, it's going to be coming up uh, in 2020. Well, you'd have to think so, because there's certainly a lot of people out there running. Well, we're, we're getting pretty close to Memorial Day in um, 2019. So I guess we should talk about the election because all podcasts have to by, by law. Yeah. And apparently for what, the next 18 months, that's what we're going to do. Not on this show. <laughs> right. Exactly. We're going to talk about things that like we can make a difference in rather than just endlessly speculating on things that will have no value a week after they air. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is not to criticize any of the many shows that I love. Please stop talking about 2020. So Stacy Mitchell is co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Welcome. To, welcome back, Stacy. Hey, nice to be with you, Chris. I'm Chris Mitchell. No relation to Stacy Mitchell. I am sitting here with uh, two of my bosses on a television screen in front of me. Um, John Farrell is the other one. John's co-director here in the Minneapolis office. Hello, Chris. Hey, John. John does energy. Stacy does independent business. I do broadband type stuff. And we also have superstar David Morris sitting next to me here, who uh, you may all know from the founding of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Hi, Chris. We're going to talk about some of the things that we're seeing in some of the democratic platforms, uh, things that we like from an Institute for Local Self-Reliance perspective. Uh, we're going to talk about how they can help to build local power, which is our mission. And I think we're going to start with a, a focus on anti-concentration. Uh, Elizabeth Warren seems to be the person who has um, certainly talked about this the most and, and developed the most policy papers around it. So I'm going to now hope that Stacy can provide us with some good information because I don't know much more than that. It's great to kick off with that. I think so many Democrats are busy talking about who's electable, and I think that's a fool's errand, and it's much more interesting and, and useful to actually talk about what are really substantial differences in matters of policy that have a lot of big implications down the road. So yeah, Senator Warren has been out really uh, kind of taking the lead in terms of setting the table with a lot of far-reaching policy ideas, particularly around uh, tackling concentrated economic power, reversing the growing monopolization of the economy. So she's put out at least three big pieces that I've caught. One is around big tech. She's also got a big piece around agriculture and like what's happening to farmers and the whole food system. And then lastly, she has a corporate tax reform proposal that I think you could safely read as being about uh, rolling back corporate power. All right. So maybe we can have a quick discussion, a quick uh, informal poll. Which one should we tackle first? Big tech, agriculture, or one of the other issues, John and David. I, I am I am interested in big tech, although I think it's it feels like it it's different in a way because it's about the the free flow of information and the way that people get ideas. Uh, but I'm also interested then to dive more into the way in which we see concentration affecting people's ability to like get work and uh, make a living. I, I think the tech monopolies also impact that, but I think it also, you know, as we know, has come up around issues of like, for example, election security and, and other uh, really fundamental um, issues to the operation of a democracy. Yeah, I, you know, I have to say, and I'm, I'm curious if David, if you have a reaction, it's just before we get into the, the, the actual meat of big tech, which I think may be one of the most important ones that um, we don't have as much of a roadmap for, is when I look back at Standard Oil, at AT&T, at dealing with IBM, the monopolies of the past. I, in some ways, because we know what happened, we have a sense of a roadmap. Did they feel at the time like we do now in terms of just like this, this sense of what do you do with this power? It's just, it seems so overwhelming. 
Yes, they did. Uh, there was there was a, a whole political movement around it in the late 19th century, uh, and that political movement uh, ended up with a direct election of uh, of uh, federal senators. It ended up with an income tax, which was a progressive income tax. Ended up with antitrust legislation. So absolutely, people understood that this was a that this was a serious problem. One thing that that is different, and of course, there's many things that are different, but but one I think very significant thing is that. Uh, the railroads or the oil companies didn't seem to, and Stacy can tell me if, if she disagrees with this, but they didn't seem to over 20 and 30 years innovate a lot. Uh, I mean, they were, they were seen as, as, as having a product that was essential, uh, and they did lower prices, at least to, to the general public, um, but they didn't innovate a lot. And the telecommunications monopolies now are seen as cutting-edge innovators, uh, and, and so you, you kind of have a, a kind thought, and then they come back at you and say, if you mess with us, you're not going to end up with any more innovation. What's interesting about that is that if you actually look at many of the innovations that have been coming out of Google, Facebook, and Amazon, the ultimate source of them is acquisitions. Um, they have been buying up all of those companies, and we've looked most specifically at Amazon. They've bought a ton of really tiny, um, innovative tech companies in order to buy the technology and to buy the innovation. Uh, and these mergers are so small that they don't trigger any kind of review or uh, any review process in terms of, of fe federal approval that they need. So I think there is actually a sort of question about, uh, you know, to what extent is this, uh, you know, really about consolidating power and no longer about innovation? And, where, and to what extent is that innovation really coming from outside these companies, but they're simply using their wealth to buy it up? Stacey, I, that, that all makes sense to me. And what, what David said totally makes sense to me. I think maybe our mission today is to get a sense of uh, what can be done about that. And so you're the one that's um, not only physically closest to Elizabeth Warren in Massachusetts, but also, um, you know, your work really, I think, has helped to inspire some of the people that are working with her. So um, what is your sense of what can be done? Well, I think the policy that she's laid out, her big tech proposal, um, really has two main components. One is that it says if you're uh, a large platform uh, over a certain size, then you're treated with uh, as a kind of utility in the sense that you have certain obligations to uh, the entities that are on your platform, and you also can't compete with them. So what that means is that, you know, in the case of Amazon, um, you can operate this platform and have third-party sellers that are selling on that platform, but you can't also then offer your own retail goods, your own manufactured goods on that platform. Essentially, you can do one or the other and not both. And a similar kind of separation, a, a structural separation, is called for in her plan uh, with regard to other big tech, tech companies like Facebook and Google. The other component of it is that she's calling for a, uh, a rollback of recent mergers. So essentially saying that you know, there has been this period where these companies have been allowed to, say, Facebook buy Instagram, and that those acquisitions were a mistake, and we actually need to uh, un un reverse those. I think what's interesting as part of this proposal, and I think is a way that Elizabeth Warren stands out, like not only in terms of having put a lot of meat on the bones of ideas. I mean, you've got other people running out there who are saying, oh, yeah, big tech is a problem, or I'm concerned about concentration. 
but mostly, you know, with some exceptions, uh, they're not going any further than that into specifics. She's put real specifics out there. She's also, I think, interestingly, talked a lot about the role of agencies, like federal agencies in carrying this out. And so I think has a sense of the fact that the presidency is not just about proposing legislation, but there's a lot of power within the administration. And how do you use that uh, in order to tackle the question of big tech? Yeah, I'd like to actually throw that out to, to John and David as well, because I think there is um, a sense that a lot of the positions we've seen from uh, many of the candidates relies on Congress to be functional and perhaps even breaking up uh, Amazon, for instance, or breaking up unwinding mergers um, or requiring Amazon and other um, providers of, of large platforms not to compete with other sellers um, may require acts of Congress, whereas um, Elizabeth Warren might be the only candidate who's actually talking about something that's somewhat realistic in, a, in an era in which very little is likely to get through Congress in, in terms of actually using executive authority specifically. My only reflection on that is just that I think the functionality of Congress is simply a is a partisanship issue, right? So if we're to see unified control of Congress by the Democratic Party, which has been the one that's more focused on antitrust, then I think you might see a route for a legislative progress uh, around antitrust, even though it's you know it's not been totally limited to Democrats, even even President Trump's administration has uh, noted some opposition to mergers. But I think certainly in the legislative field, it's been Democrats so far that have really had that strong focus on antitrust. And so I I think that's, you know, in the same way that we're going to have a presidential election in 2020 that could be determinative here, we also are going to have Congress up for re-election, and there could be some changes there uh, that we might not be able to see now, but uh, that if the if the chips fall the right way, there might be majorities in both houses of Congress to move antitrust legislation. I mean, I agree that when you look at who's taking the lead on antitrust in Congress, you definitely see more Democrats in the mix uh, than you do Republicans, but you do see a few. I mean, there's Josh Howley um, out of Missouri, who's been leading the way and sort of calling out some of Google's issues and talking about antitrust. Um, you know, Ted Cruz, of all people, kind of endorsed uh, Elizabeth Warren's uh, tech proposals in, in some ways. You know what? So I, you know, and I, but I think you're right. It is mostly Democrats. But I think what what worries me, and particularly watching a campaign unfold where there's much more focus on who's electable and instead of being on policy, is that we end up with a candidate who you know, sort of runs loosely on these ideas and issues, but doesn't actually have any plan to back it up in a real way. And it just becomes harder and harder for people to discern any difference between the parties or actually make people's legislative and policy interests manifest in some ways that we just sort of continue the frustration with government. Just, you know, it's, it's very much a snapshot here, but I just went to some recent polling data and looked at the five candidates who've most prominently been identified with either antitrust or anti-monopoly rhetoric or some policy proposals. So you have Warren at the top in terms of her very you know high level of specificity. You've also seen Cory Booker, Beto O'Rourke, Amy Klobuchar, and Bernie Sanders to some degree or another ha- saying something in the media about this being an issue. Collectively, they're getting about 30% in the poll that I happened to look at from Quinnipiac in the last week. And Joe Biden, of course, is getting more than that by himself. And interestingly enough, he has a history of actually being in the wrong place on antitrust, actually moving uh, against a proposal by Senator Ted Kennedy back in the 70s 
uh, that would increase merger scrutiny. So it's, it is telling that this has become a big issue, that there is, are several candidates who are picking up that this is one. But when you, you know, contrast that with this issue of electability that a lot of people are focused on, you have the candidate that most people are thinking of when they think of the word electability uh, squarely uh, in opposition to good policy around mergers and concentration. John, I wanted to to just note that um, in my world, everyone noticed that um, uh, Joe Biden's first fundraiser after um, coming out for president was uh, at the top lobbyist for Comcast, David Cohen's house. Um, He hates being called the top lobbyist because he really tries to hide the fact that he's a lobbyist. But um, but that's uh, where Biden immediately went to raise money. So, David. Yes. So just a couple of things. I mean, one is that you know, in terms of Elizabeth Warren, she has the specificity, as, as Stacy said, she also has an experience. I mean, she was the prime mover to creating a federal agency, uh, a new federal agency that, that, you know, took after the central core in terms of uh, those who were working with finance, bankers, uh, insurance, uh, um, those who student uh, loans and the like. Uh, and it was extremely effective. I mean, so sh- she has, you know, both that uh, that experience under her belt, but also understood w- how it was effective. And I'm sure that she would have made changes now, uh, you know, after she's seen it both from the inside and from the outside. So that's extremely important, especially if you don't think that Congress is going to do anything uh, related to this. You need to understand what the power of agencies is. The The part that I find fascinating about Warren is that I actually think that she communicates this better than any of the other candidates in terms of what David was just saying. She has a real practical experience. She actually knows how it works and she can describe it to people. And yet, um, of all the candidates, she's perceived as being um, uh, very bad at communicating. And so I'm, I'm trying to figure out if, there's a, if, if I'm just in a, an extreme minority in thinking she's good at communicating or if we're seeing efforts um, by you know, very powerful corporate interests just to try to delegitimize her, which actually seems to be where Matthew Stoller and others are um, or seem to think that uh, they seem to think that's a, what's happening. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there are a lot of people spending a lot of money because, you know, they recognize that her agenda proposes a, a serious threat to them. Um, you know, and, and of course, you know, there's a way in which I think some of those uh, attacks on her sort of rest on misogyny, you know, that that's still an active current uh, in, the, in the political dynamic. And, I, you know, I, but I, I, I think we're, you know, back to sort of the, the central point here is, is that, you know, the, the fact that the Democratic Party and that, and that so many rank-and-file Democrats are kind of so into electability and sort of interested in the fresh face and like who, you know, who looks good out there, who's, you know, trying to sort of second guess what other people are going to like, means that a lot of people aren't actually thinking about, well, what are the policy choices that we have? Where do we actually want to take this country? Because it's not just about this election. It's like, how do you actually begin to build uh, enough political support for like long-term change? Um, And doesn't seem to me that there's as much focus on that uh, really a, a across uh, really across the whole discussion about this race. I mean, Bernie Sanders is another person who's been you know talking about uh, concentration, particularly in the agricultural sector. Uh, lately, he just gave a huge speech uh, in Iowa all around breaking up farm monopolies and really talking about how to restore rural America. And I think you know coming from Vermont has a very you know strong sense of what that means, like what's going on with dairy farmers right now and kind of being on the losing end of things. So you know there is there is this part of the uh, 
this part of the race that is policy focused and people out who are out there, I think, articulating um, a certain vision that was really absent for the Democratic Party for a long time. And so that's kind of the good news. Um, but I do worry about someone like Biden who comes in and says, well, you know, it's not really about any of these things. I'm just electable and, and everything was fine before and Trump's an anomaly and all of that. And I just think that that's just not true. Um, so let's let's do a quick roundup. I mean, given that I think Elizabeth Warren has given substantial thought to to anti consolidation, we could spend the rest of the show and more um, just talking about her various policies. But I'm curious, Stacey, if you could run through uh, high points of some of the other non big tech type um, antitrust or anti monopoly type work. Yeah, so she's got a proposal for the farm sector where she's talking about appointing folks to like the FTC who will reverse some of the recent mergers like uh, Bayer Monsanto that have affected uh, farms and rural communities negatively. She's talking about breaking up existing uh, concentrated monopolies in the ag sector, and she's talking about uh, you know meat processors and the like. She's also got a, a several proposals in there that are not within the kind of antitrust space, but but are also, you know, using different levers uh, to address what's going on with with power in the food system. So one is one is a right to repair, which would allow farmers to repair their tractors. Like right now, you have to go through John Deere. It's a whole, you know, racket. And she's also got some reforms to something called the checkoff program, which is, you know, something that a lot of uh, uh, growers and and, uh, and and people who raise meat um, have to pay into these funds that are ostensibly for marketing, but are really used by uh, large processors uh, for their own ends. And so she's calling for, for reform to that. So I think there again, you see, you know, some mix of antitrust things, but also kind of recognizing um, that there are other tools at play that can be useful. And that's also evident in her corporate tax reform proposal. Um, and what struck me about that is kind of interesting is that she talks explicitly about part of the purpose of it is to uh, level the playing field. Um, So she is pointing to data that shows that the very largest companies um, uh, pay lower effective federal tax rates than small businesses do. Um, And a lot of it is because of loopholes. Um, You know, we have examples like Amazon last year earned $10 billion in profits and paid zero uh, federal taxes. I mean, you can go out and walk down your main street, and I, I challenge you to find a single retailer who didn't pay something substantially higher than that. Um, so her tax reform proposal is kind of built around that idea of how do we have actually a level playing field. Yeah, and actually the the right to repair, um, I just saw Bernie actually speaking out on that too um, uh, very recently. So um, that's something that's um, that's catching on. We are seeing uh, issues of concentration show up in in other candidates, um, you know, in a less detailed, less maybe aggressive kind of way. I mean, Amy Klobuchar, a senator from Minnesota who's been um, uh, on the antitrust committee in the Senate uh, and is very knowledgeable in this area, you know, has proposed, um, you know, putting some, uh, you know, additional tightening uh, around mergers. Uh, so it has a little bit of policy out there. Cory Booker has also proposed a, a, a moratorium on big agriculture mergers. So Warren isn't the only one. It's just that, uh, you know, her policies, um, you know, go further and are more detailed and track more closely to the nature of the problem. So closing comments on anti-consolidation before we, I guess there's some other subjects in the in the 2020 election that may be, um, you know, 
getting people out to the polls, but um, want to give John and David a chance to weigh in on anti-monopoly uh, type stuff before we move on to those. Well, I think that, that the anti-monopoly is also an anti-concentrated power. Uh, and I think, for example, the wealth tax, which, which uh, Warren you know, proposed, uh, is, you know, is something that Congress would have to do, uh, so one can argue that it isn't going to get done. On the other hand, it's a, it's a, a brilliant uh, illumination of an issue uh, in a way that people probably haven't thought of it at all. I mean, essentially, it's a you know two percent tax on on the annual tax on the wealth of those with over fifty million dollars in assets, and a three percent on those with over a billion dollars in assets. Uh, and it would raise uh, even at the lower level, it would raise almost three trillion dollars in ten years. And what could be done with that? You know, and so you know, then people essentially uh, have to respond to that. You know, I mean, in other words, what you're saying is. Uh, you're, you're combating the the other side's uh, argument that even if you took all the money away from the rich, uh, you really wouldn't be able to solve any of the any of the country's problems, and you're and you're just being you know envious uh, and jealous. Uh, but in fact, if you if you dealt with wealth uh, rather than income, uh, that argument can be flipped. I, I'm sensing that David may not be a supporter of the Starbucks CEO. I forget his name or the founder um, who who labeled these ideas um, not even serious, despite the fact that I think they poll uh, above majority support among Republicans to say nothing of the the country as a whole. Um, and so I, I think it's worth like as you're as you're mentioning these issues um, that um, that it's fascinating how an idea that is very supportive, very well supported among the public um, has been um, written out by a large segments of the elected class. That's exactly right. And, and I think that one, you know, as I said, in terms of history, in the late, you know, the 1880s, 1890s, you, you, you had an entire party in one part of its platform. It was a very detailed platform, actually. Uh, but one part of its platform was an income tax on the rich. And at that point, it wasn't really to raise a lot of money because we were raising money from customs uh, 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 tariffs and the like. But uh, but for moral uh, issues, that is, was something wrong about one person having more wealth than you know several thousand people or several million people, uh, and uh, and they got it done, and we did not have it before, except you know for a short period of time during the Civil War. Um, so that was a, a a new concept. There was a political movement, and we got it done. The Supreme Court said uh, no, uh, it's unconstitutional, and then we had to have a constitutional amendment, and that was a political movement in and of itself. So the idea that we don't have a wealth tax, uh, you know, shouldn't stop us from thinking about its, its possibilities and its potential. Uh, I just wanted to note, too, that, you know, the, the, you know, there are lots of other interesting sectors in which this can apply, and, you know, I, obviously my bias being working on energy is, is to see the way in which this might apply to utility monopolies. But I know we want to cover a few other sectors as well, but just wanted to flag that we've had a conversation about that issue before. And, and I've written about the impact of like mergers and concentration in the electricity sector in particular, uh, as something, uh, a point of other discussion that we've had on other podcasts. In terms of, of electricity, it's a good precedent, I think, for uh, what Stacy was talking about and what Warren is talking about in terms of the platform monopolies. Because what the federal government did uh, in 1978 was essentially to, you know, to allow for independent power producers. Uh, and then over the next decade, decade and a half, what it ended up being 
was a was a a, a, a legislative movement, if you will, and a regulatory movement that uh, essentially uncoupled the transmission. Uh, the ownership of the transmission lines of electricity from the generation of electricity. And what that then did was to open up the space for independent power producers for renewable energy uh, and, and the like. Uh, and the original legislation, or at least that in, in the 1980s, uh, said that the, that the independent power producers could not be owned by the utility companies, at least a majority owned. So it was what opened the door to really a technological development that today is challenging the very centralized um, model, as, as John Farrell has pointed out innumerable times. And, and I just wanted to note that I'm fortunate to be working in the broadband sector where we don't have to worry about concentrated power of very large companies that have total control over the future of our lives. It's really quite, <laughs> it's really quite nice. <laughs> um, I want to take a, a quick break just to remind people that uh, we're bringing you this ad free and I'm going to encourage you to rate our show. I'm not going to go on and on about it because some of you are going to do that, but some of you aren't. And maybe I've just guilted some of you into actually going and doing it. We'd love to get some more ratings uh, for this content. Uh, please let other people know about the show and uh, support us at ilsr.org slash donate. Um, we're going to jump right back into it. And um, David, you had mentioned something um, about one of the candidates who uh, is not get a lot of attention that you thought was important. And uh, this is something that actually Hillary Clinton um, decided not to run on after giving a very serious consideration in 2016, the idea of guaranteed uh, income. And I'm curious how you can um, tie that into um, local self-reliance. Well, yes. The, I mean, the concept, uh, the argument for universal basic income uh, or guaranteed income uh, has been around for a while, but it's now being implemented uh, in a number of places as, as pilot projects, really, uh, although Finland did a much larger project uh, involved in that. Uh, and it essentially, the argument is that technological development is such now, and I think people recognize that, that people are being replaced by either apps or robots or driverless cars or whatever it happens to be, uh, and you have this enormous you know, malconcentration of wealth in part because of that. And so we need to figure out ways in which we can generate an income or get money to people that's not related to their jobs. At the same time, uh, allowing that people will have jobs and, and, uh, and that labor income is extremely important. So a universal basic income concept is now being adopted, and it's being adopted by a lot of different sides. And there's a, it, there's a complex subject uh, because one side essentially wants to say, let's take all the welfare programs, uh, consolidate them, and then give them equally to people around the, you know, around the country. Uh, but there's, but the, the more, I think, sophisticated and, uh, and well-constructed you know, argument uh, is that, uh, that much of the wealth that's generated in a society is generated because of what the public sector has done, what government has done, et cetera. Uh, and this idea goes back to the very beginning of the of the United States uh, and the Republic, and to Thomas Paine. And Thomas Paine uh, wrote a book, extremely popular uh, book called *Agrarian Justice*, and he put forth the concept of a citizen's dividend. And uh, the argument was that the that the value of land, the increase in the value of land 
comes from two different things. One is the uh, labor that people put into the land, and that should be yours. That's your income. That's your genius. That's your sweat. Um, but the other is because of what the public sector does. Uh, and at that time, it was rural. So roads, for example, uh, regulations related to, to delivery systems. Uh, and today, we're talking about parks. We're talking about uh, 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 piping systems, uh, 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 broadband you know, extension. Uh, and so the argument is then a part of that, and this is what Thomas Paine said, uh, that 10% of that should actually be taken uh, from, because that's essentially rent, and should it's unjust uh, uh, acquisition of wealth that should go to the public, and then to be distributed in dividends uh, to every man, woman, and child uh, in the United States. And the amount of money that he was going to distribute is almost exactly the same amount of money in current dollars uh, as the amount of money that Andrew Wang, who's a Democratic presidential candidate, wants to distribute. Now, there's a, there's a problem with, with Wang in that what he wants to do is raise the money from a 10% value-added tax, and we can talk about a 10% sales tax at some other time. But many other people are saying what we should do is have a financial transactions tax. We should tax the increased value that comes from copyrights, from patents. That is, the things that we, that we did as a society as a whole that increased the value uh, of, to an individual, portion of that uh, should go to the community as a whole. I have very complicated feelings about universal basic income. I like the idea of there being dividends payments for things that are in the Commonwealth, you know, that we that we all contribute to and, and maybe should get a share of. I like the idea also of just getting rid of welfare programs, of just getting rid of all the bureaucracy and the shaming and everything else that goes on in the whole welfare system by just cutting people a check and being done with it. But I also, I don't believe that we're going to have a shortage of work, um, you know, if we actually have the kind of economy that we should have. I think we've always had technological change, and there have been these periods in time where technologies have come along and wiped out entire sectors. I think what is different right now is that you have a handful of companies that really have a stranglehold, because what happened in the past is that you know, there was a sort of flush of new innovation, new ideas that led to new industries and new kinds of jobs. And we've really seen a collapse in that pipeline. And what worries me about the whole UBI discussion is it becomes sort of a way of letting big tech in particular, but large companies kind of off the hook and not recognizing that problem. And I also think as a matter of policy, sort of deciding that a large share of the population um, is essentially useless um, is, a, is a really, uh, I think that's an incredibly dysfunctional idea. Um, and I also don't think it's true. I think there's an incredible amount of work that needs to be not done. I mean, we had um, Sarita Gupta on uh, on this podcast uh, back, I think last year sometime, I can't remember, um, you know, talking about the care economy and sort of the whole tremendous amount of need there is for people as they get older and for kids, uh, childcare and the like, which is going unaddressed. So I think there's a lot of work. And I think the idea of saying there is no work and that people is use are useless is a, is a, a problematic policy idea. 
Well, I need to st- I need to step in because I didn't say that, and I think that it's 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 unfortunate to sort of come back like that. Uh, nobody is talking about the elimination of work period, and no one is talking about a universal basic income that actually would cover uh, everything that you need. Um, so they're talking about it as a supplement, but it's an extremely important supplement to your labor income. And if you look throughout history, just in terms of the uh, amount of work uh, or the value generated from work, we had an agricultural sector that, uh, that employed the majority of the population, and now it employs what? Five percent, if you included distribution, you know maybe fifteen percent, uh, and then we had a manufacturing sector that employed a significant part of the population, and now we have a retail sector, and yes, and a personal care sector that that is essentially the driving force uh, for you know much of the economies here and in the rest of the world, uh, and now we can see in the retail sector and in the personal care sector uh, the beginning of, uh, of of the of the substitution. Uh, in, in that sector. So I, I do think that one can talk about the dynamics of history in a different way. But the important point is that no one that, that I've read, uh, actually, uh, is talking about a universal basic income as your only, your only income. Uh, but with the studies that have been done, the pilot studies that have been done in Canada and in Finland and the like, indicates that even if you get a you know, $10,000 a year, $8,000 a year, that amount of money changes the way you, you work, the way you think of yourself, uh, and, and the options, uh, not only if you happen to be very low income, uh, but also if you happen to be you know, above that in, in income levels. Uh, and that's what uh, they, they think is, is mostly important on this. In my reading of it, I've I've seen both sort of sentiments. There is a sense, I think, and there's this there's this whole argument over dignity of work, um, which is something that that means different things to to different people. I think, um, and, it, and it does come down to the value of someone who's working. Now, I actually think I'd just like to go in, in two different directions. One, I'm going to throw to Farrell in a second here, um, and then but the other one is is that I think there's a real value to scaling these things up, um, and that's to say that I I. I don't think that I would support the United States going down this path, but I love that there's experiments with it. And as we iterate and, you know, as we go from perhaps cities to entire countries, you know, maybe moving in that direction, we'll learn a lot. And I look forward to the next 10 years of experimentation to to learn from this. But I don't think it should be something that um, the U.S. federal government is, is significantly doing at this point. I would support states moving forward with it. Um, Stacy's wagging her finger at me, and, and since she's <laughs> well, I just the, se- to get, the senior I just Mitchell to, has precedence. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, I just wanted to get back in here. I mean, I think you know, the, I don't, I don't disagree with a, a lot of what you said, David. And I, I certainly, you know, as I said when I started out, I, I, you know, the idea of dividends payments and sort of public, uh, you know, sort of public participation in that way, and the end of the welfare system and that sort of thing. But, but I would say that there are a lot of people in Silicon Valley and elsewhere who are talking about this notion that there is going to be no work in the future. And, um, and they are, you know, sort of sidestepping questions about what their role is and their power is in that future um, by saying, well, let's have a, a universal basic income. You know, we'll just sort of, you know, pay off people um, for the fact that there is no work to be done. And so that's why I think actually being specific about what it is that we're talking about is really critical and, and actually digging into what is the nature of this policy and what does it really mean? Um, because I, I, I do think those messages are out there and, and, and there's, a, there's a path to steer through um, that's more useful. 
So as we're as we're wrapping up, I wanted to throw to John one last time. John, you and I actually talked a little bit about this in the morning, and I thought I'd, I'd prompt you regarding this um, um, pod, past podcast discussion that we'd had. I don't remember if it was the one that Stacy just referenced, but where we talked about how the um, um, we romanticized the history of the manufacturing jobs as though it was something special. Yeah, um, that was actually not one of the ones on the list I was thinking of, but I'm glad you brought it up. It was a uh... A fairly recent episode for, of Building Local Power, where Stacy was speaking with a guest, kind of about the. It was, the, I believe, the title was "The Future of Work," and it was yeah. kind of looking at the, you know, contingent labor economy. But she had this beautiful moment at the end, and I had shared a tweet because I had just listened to the episode this week about the uh, way in which we romanticize the manufacturing sector as being a source of high-paying jobs and ignore the fact that that was a deliberate policy choice, thanks to union organizing. Um, and so I think that's a, a, a really interesting way in order to reflect on that. Stacey, I don't know if you have something more you want to add from that conversation that you had. Yeah, that was Sarita Gupta, um, who, who was the guest for that show and who made that comment. And, and I think, right, you know, you, there was nothing, you know, Walmart jobs are, are just as complex as a lot of the manufacturing jobs of that era. I mean, we've, we've sort of internalized this idea of like high skill and low skill, but I think that's a ruse for really just, you know, overlooking what's really going on, which is that we had policies that supported labor organizing and then we didn't. So John, I wanted to um, wrap up with you have any other suggestions of where people can, you know, we got, we got caught up in two topics that I thought we, we did a, a very interesting job covering in ways that um, we don't see other people talking about them in this way. Um, you know, people uh, who want us to go more into depth on these issues, uh, not on the campaigns, but on some of the issues that uh, will be discussed, should let us know, podcast at ILSR.org. Um, that's our way to eat, reach out to us, podcast at ILSR.org. Uh, but John, you had some list of some resources that you were going to recommend. Yeah, I just wanted to highlight that we, you know, obviously have talked about concentration uh, in a lot of different economic sectors in a lot more specificity and detail with the entire podcast episodes. Uh, just a few that you can catch if you're interested in this idea on work and wages. There was the podcast that we were just talking about with uh, Serena Gupta last summer. I don't have the episode number, unfortunately, but there was also episode 42 with Marshall Steinbaum looking at the impact of monopoly uh, at at reducing the way in which workers have uh, can get competition between employers and looking at this issue of how difficult it's been during this economic recovery to see increases in wages. That's actually been in the news again recently. Um, a couple, a few other episodes then addressed uh, concentration in the agricultural sector, which has been mentioned by a few of the candidates, including Warren. Uh, John Eichert, episode 32, uh, Joe Maxwell in episode 33, and then in episode 65, Leah Douglas. Uh, and all three of those uh, podcasts for Building Local Power, we talk about uh, the way in which concentration in the agricultural sector is making it difficult to make a living as a family farmer. And for the master class, just listen to all of them again, because our wisdom is so extreme that you can only absorb all of it through repeated listenings. <laughs> so Stacy was distracted or else I would have got her with that one. You did get an eye roll. Thank you, Stacy. Thank you, John. Thank you, David. Uh, it was a fun conversation. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to Building Local Power. This is John Farrell, ILSR co-director. Check out the show page for a transcript. While you're at our website, show us some love with a contribution to help cover the costs of producing this podcast. You can also help us out by rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. Or just drop us a line at podcast at ILSR.org. This show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez and Hiba Mure. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. 
Please join us next time in Building Local Power.